Our Father, we recognize that what we're about to do or what we're doing now is not something that can be performed uh, in the flesh. It is not something that uh, we can do according to a ritual, according to a liturgy, and, and make ourselves right in your sight just because we've done it according to the book. We come to ask that your Spirit would make all that we do here acceptable in your sight. We've come, O oh God, to, to uh, gaze upon divine loveliness. And we pray that you would aid us in doing so. And so we pray of a truth, Spirit of the living God. Come reside on us. Fill us anew. Break us. Mold us. Melt us. Make us. It's a work that only you can accomplish, O oh God. So we ask you to be present in what we do here. And um, receive what we do with gladness and pleasure. Our Father, uh, we live in a world that is so scary right now. Uh, we wonder where the next terrorist attack is going to happen. We pray for um, our, our government, our president, and pray that you will grant him wisdom to make wise decisions. And we pray, O oh God, that you would have mercy on us and put a man in the White House uh, that is one who fears you and reverences your name. Lord, um, we as a nation have drifted far, but might we as a church be a part of calling this nation back to her historic and uh, spiritual roots. Father, uh, we pray for people who have lost loved ones just this week. And I pray, Lord, that you will comfort them in knowing that there's one more move, that the grave is not the end, that there is something that awaits all of your people that will uh, transport us into a, uh, an eternity of felicity and bliss. Our Father, um, I, I pray that decisions will be made at this church that will honor you, that all that we do here will be designed to bring glory to your name and to build no man's reputation, but to magnify the name of the, uh, the, name of the Lord in a world that seems to have lost sight of who he is. Father, take our gifts, use them to advance the cause of Christ. Might the big ones and the little ones, might they all come from hearts that are willing to sacrifice and trust. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. He's the one who taught his people to pray when they said together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. We invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. And you're going to have to um, stay nimble, because we're going to skip around a bit, as uh, the printed text hints. So you follow as, um, as I direct. Um, we're going to start in chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 at verse 1, and then we're immediately going to skip to the 18th verse. So you just... Listen up and follow as I read. Acts 
18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, uh, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and had gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order Uh, In order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he went on. Chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go into Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there, stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychius and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Skip over to verse 15. Uh, We sailed from there and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos um, and stayed at Trogillium. The next day we came to Miletus. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now it came to pass that when he had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos. The following day to Rose and Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And then the final two, verses seven and eight. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Gang, we, um, we started a study of the book of Acts a little over two years ago. The first sermon that I preached in the book of Acts was on January the 20th of 2002. And, uh, of course, it's been interrupted several times in the course of treating that book. Uh, the most recent interruption, of course, was uh, Christmas. And then I did that uh, series on the First Commandment, uh, Idolatry. And then there was that month that we were away in Hungary. And then, of course, Easter. And so here we are back uh, at the book of Acts. And Lord willing, we're going to complete our study of the book of Acts in uh, five or six weeks. Uh, now, to do that, it's obvious, I think, to you, that we can't go verse by verse. If we're going to cover 11 chapters in five or six weeks, we're not going to be able to go that verse by verse thing. 
And you know, um, one of the things that I did while I was away is I studied these last 11 chapters of Acts. Um, Susie will tell you, every time she looked up, I had uh, the, the Bible in my hands reading those 11 chapters again. And, and I came to the conclusion that, first of all, a verse-by-verse exposition of, of those 11 chapters wasn't needed. And it wasn't needed primarily because there's so much repetition. For instance, Paul gives his testimony three times in those 11 chapters. So it's the same testimony in, in, with a little bit of a different ending. So I, I came to the conclusion that I wasn't going to do a verse-by-verse, and I was going to do it a, a, a tad differently. And, and here's what these 11 chapters are about. This is 11 chapters, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, comprise a biography of the Apostle Paul. Uh, now, there's a brief story here and there about somebody else, but, um, oh, I would say 97% of, of these 11 chapters is about Paul. And what I want to do in these five or six weeks is I want to share with you the impressions that were left on me in my study of those 11 chapters, uh, the impressions about Paul's ministry. The more Pauline we are, uh, the better off we're going to be. But let's be honest. Not many of you out there are really interested in a biography of the Apostle Paul. Um, uh, Paul who? I mean, you'd be a whole lot more interested if I was going to share with you insights out of a biography of Donald Trump or or maybe Britney Spears. But this Paul guy has influenced you far more than you know. You may not be aware that some of the positions that you hold on to are Pauline, but they are. Um, For instance, the favorite verse of any man was given to you by the Apostle Paul. Of course, the favorite verse of any man is, wives submit. We love that verse. And that was given to us, brethren, by, by Paul. Um, my, my point really is, most of the concepts that you have concerning marriage were given to you by this man. But, but not just marriage, ladies and gentlemen. Um, that ode to love, I hate to call it an ode, but uh, people almost treat it like that. That thing that everybody seems to know, and everybody seems to love, and they all want to use it at, uh, at uh, every wedding. You know, that, uh, that description of love. Love is patient. Love endures all things and hopes all things. That was given to us by this guy, Paul. He has, um, he's taught you things, ladies and gentlemen, whether you knew it or not. He's taught you things about parenting, about giving. He's taught you about how to die. He uh, has influenced you over your views of racism. He has left his mark when it comes to human sexuality. Gang, um, there is, uh, those, uh, those 16 episodes of The Apprentice, they might have entertained you. But surely none of you want to go be like Donald Trump, do you? I don't have a $250,000 job to offer you 
at the end of our study. I had you, I have for you something I think that's more valuable than that. How much, what kind of price tag would you put on um, insights as to how to live? How much would you pay to um, improve your marriage and learn how to die? How much, how much would you fork over to, to learn how to construct a life that worked better? Well, I, I say all of that, ladies and gentlemen, because I want to raise the level of interest, hopefully, in a, in a discussion, in a five or six week long discussion over uh, the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul's contribution as a theologian, ladies and gentlemen, is unsurpassed. But that's not the only contribution that Paul has made. Paul also teaches us how the ministry of the gospel is to be executed. Um, there is um, this is this is a uh, this is a man who not only teaches you his theological system, um, but he he teaches you how it is that the gospel ministry is to be performed. These 11 chapters are not a summation of how Paul thought. This is a summation of how Paul lived. You know, I I normally, I look to Paul to teach me what it is that I'm supposed to teach you. And, And when I compared myself with Paul's theology... I passed. But you see, seldom had I ever thought that I needed also to compare my ministry with the Apostle Paul. In my theological world, ladies and gentlemen, Paul is a hero. In my theological world, to be Pauline, we pride ourselves on being Pauline. Uh, Luther, Calvin, uh, Augustine. All great theologians, but were all, they were all taught by the Apostle Paul. And I love to think of myself as, as adopting a theological system that is Pauline. I, that's what I was taught in seminary. But there was a disconnect. There was a disconnect between the theology of Paul and the life of Paul. As I said, when I compared myself, when I compared my theology to Paul's, I passed. But then I started reading the last 11 chapters of the book of Acts. And what you find there is not his theology. It's not about his thought life. It's about how he lived life. When it came to evaluating myself based on Pauline theology, I did okay. But Acts 18 through 28 is not about theology. It's about life and ministry. When I compared myself to his theology, I I passed, ladies and gentlemen. But when I compared myself to his life and ministry, it, it was a tad disheartening. It was a tad shocking, really. These are 11 chapters 
about how a man, a believing man, lived out his life in response to what he believed. His, his theology is very instructive, but so is his life. You know, gang, in, in one sense, it's much easier to be Pauline in your theology than it is to be Pauline in your ministry. And, and I'm here to tell you that I think there is a disconnect, not only in me, but in us. A disconnect between what Paul taught and how Paul lived. That is, we love to think of ourselves as conforming greatly to the, what Paul taught. And, and yet, you watch as a man fleshes out what he believed in a life and ministry, and then try to compare yourself to that. Are, are you with me? I mean, uh, go to the book of Romans, go to the book of Galatians, go to the book of Ephesians, and get your theology straight. Amen. You know I believe that. You know I love that. But then come over here to the last 11 chapters of the book of Acts, and things get stickier. It gets far more difficult, ladies and gentlemen, far more difficult. It's easy, in one sense. It's easy to be Pauline in the way you think. It's not so easy, ladies and gentlemen, to be Pauline in the way you conduct ministry and how you live your life. And, and in the 21st century evangelical church, I, I think we have divorced those two. We, uh, we insist on getting our message right, and well, we should. And yet, um, once that is done, that is, once we've got the message correctly uh, understood and, and uh, believed, there seems to be among us very little concern as to how we flesh out what it is that we now say we believe. Are you with me? Gang, I am not trying to plead with you to be non-Pauline in your theology. I love Pauline theology. I'm simply saying, you take a look at a man who believes certain things, believes certain things in how he lived, and then you measure us against that? Oh, we believe? <laughs> but that's about as far as it goes. Uh, we, we seem to be satisfied by just... Um, making sure that we get all of our theological ducks in a row. You know, gang, the, the, the theology of Paul can be found in numerous churches. The ministry of Paul um, I, I don't see it. I don't see it among us. I, I don't see it in the evangelical world much. And what I want to do is examine not his theological statements. We've done that and we'll continue to do it. Come be with us Wednesday night. We'll be studying Romans 7. We'll study some more Pauline theology. And I'm exhilarated to study his theology. But for the next five or six weeks, we're not going to concern ourselves with that. We're going to concern ourselves with the model of someone who believes certain things. And from there lived a certain life that, that doesn't seem to be happening among us. We got the theology part down. We just haven't, haven't seen it give rise to the kind of life that we see it give rise to in the Apostle Paul. Gang, I want us to be Pauline in, in our theology, but I also want us to be Pauline in our life. 
calling in a ministry. And I got a hint for you. We got a long way to go <laughs> um, to uh, to examine Paul's theology is is oh so stimulating. Yes, but to examine his life that's humbling. What made Paul who he was? Was it his message? Not really. It was a person. A person that he thought his buddies had killed. And they did. Problem is, he didn't stay dead. And then that resurrected Jesus met him on a road to Damascus. And as a result of that little meeting on the road to Damascus, Paul developed a message that, that sent him on a lifelong mission. You know, folks, you don't have to be very, you don't have to be a very sanctified man to believe Paul's theology. In fact, I would even suggest to you that you might not even need to be a Christian to believe Paul's theology. But to emulate Paul's life, um, that, that requires stuff that is not, not present in many of us, including me, or maybe only me, but, um, Teaching Paul is one thing. And I hope I do that well. And I love to do it. I love to teach Paul. Nothing is more exhilarating than the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Nothing's more fun than to teach that. I love to teach Paul. But living Paul, do. That's different. And that's why, I say, that's the disconnect I have in mind. That's the one that I think is not only present in me, but is present in us. We, we love to be theologically adroit. And I'm not trying to discourage that, ladies and gentlemen. Don't, don't give that up. But that is supposed to give rise to something. And that's, that's the concern. By the way, for those of you who are out there thinking, I'm preaching something about, let's all go out and be like Paul kind of morality, or I'm not doing that. Well, let me tell you why. I'm, let me tell you what I mean. It was Paul who said, in fact, he said it twice. He said it in 1 Corinthians 11. He said it in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Paul's not the model. But to the degree that he imitated Christ, he's the model. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to suggest to you that Paul imitates Christ quite a bit. It's just me that I'm worried that doesn't imitate Paul and Christ or either one of them. So again, understand, the plea is, yes, I am calling you to imitate Paul. I'm calling you to imitate Paul just as he imitates Christ. So, that, that's all by way of introduction, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to understand that as I studied these 11 chapters, I was hit frontally with the, with the impact of a man who was caught up in a ministry that I know nothing about. And that's the one that I want us to have together. This one. And so uh, I want to spend four, five, six weeks telling you about it. I want, to, I want to give you, I want to start, I want to organize my thoughts tonight or this morning around two questions. First of all, 
what is Paul up to that we're not? And secondly, what has Paul got that we don't? What is Paul up to that we're not? And what has Paul got that we don't? Let's talk about question number one. What is Paul up to that we're not? Did anybody figure out why in the world I was reading those verses that I was reading in my text? <laughs> Did anybody sit there and wonder, um, what in the world does all that have to do with anything? I mean, did you, did you get anything as I read, gosh, was it 24, did, did you see the emphasis that I was trying to make? Did you catch it? Well, what I did is, as I went through those 11 chapters and I tried to pick out some verses, and there's, there's others in there, that showed us something about Paul, the thing that he was up to that we're not. Did you notice, well, let me back up. If there was any overriding impression on me when I read those 11 chapters, it was this. This guy was on a mission. Did you notice how Paul was moving? He was constantly moving. Paul was a man on the move. And, and, and again, somehow we bought into his theology, but we missed out on his mission. And, and we've divorced that mission that you see described in these 11 chapters, we've divorced that mission from that theological position of his. Gang, the typical... It's the microphone. The typical believer, rarely if ever, shares his faith. The typical believer, rarely if ever, extends help to poor him or herself. The typical believer rarely, if ever, visits anyone in a prison. Is that, is that fairly close to accurate? Right, do, do you see what I'm trying to illustrate? I'm simply saying that we have, we have gotten this, this great theological system of his down pat. But in response to what Paul believed, it set him to moving. All those verses that I read showed Paul on the move. That's what they had in common. He went from here to here to here to here to cities I couldn't pronounce. He was always moving. He, he, um, he believed certain things, and those certain things put his little feet into motion. Now, I just said that the typical believer, typical, <laughs> I'm in trouble with that. The typical believer rarely, if ever, shares his faith, rarely, if ever, extends help to the poor, rarely, if ever, visits the prison. Now, do you see the problem? It is a disconnect. It is the divorce between a theological system and the life and ministry. That's what he's up to. What is Paul up to that we're not? This man's on the move. He is a go-getter. Gang, what criteria are normally used to measure um, the success or lack of same of a church? What criteria are used? You know it, you good Baptists out there. Nickels and noses. 
You know, the nickels means money and the noses means number of people. Could I add a third? Buildings. So here are the criteria that are used to measure a church. How much money, how many people, and what do their buildings look like? Those are, the, those are the criteria that are normally used. Now, stay with me. How do you evaluate an army? Um, what criteria do you use to evaluate an army? Do you measure the army by the strength or, or the number of soldiers who are fighting on the front line or the number of soldiers that are eating in the mess hall? Do you measure the strength of an army by the number of fighters on the front lines or do you measure the strength of the army by how many of the soldiers are attending seminars? Um, you measure the number of victories, ladies and gentlemen. You don't measure the, the, the amount of training. Now, training is important. But training has something in view. And what's in view? Victory. The best trained army in the world proved that it was the best trained army in the world. In the uh, war in Iraq, in a matter of weeks, that war was essentially over. But gang, you gauge an, an army by how, how well she fights, not how well she, she marches. Your, your army is judged by its successful advances. Not its successful retreats. It's, it's not discussions about battle that are, that are, that are remembered. It's battle. It's not views of battle or opinions of battle or strategies of battle. It's battle. That's how you evaluate an army. Here's my point. I think we have to change all of the criteria by which we measure a ministry. Forget that Nichols noses and building stuff. Gang, in a similar way, the strength of a church is to be measured not by her seating capacity, but by her sending capacity. The strength of a church is not, is not to be evaluated based on her budget, but on her battles. The strength of a church is not to be measured on her ability to discuss but her ability to act. Tell me this, gang. How many members are we actually mobilizing for ministry and mission at Grace Evan? How many of the number of people who attend here have we mobilized for mission and ministry? How many people attend Bible studies? Well, yeah, lots of those. And by the way, please don't hear me say I'm against Bible. I'm not. That's wonderful things. But the Bible study has got to be designed just like training an army. It's training for ministry. How well have we done, ladies and gentlemen? How well have I done? Maturity is never an end in itself. Maturity is maturity when it shows up in ministry and mission. And that's what I learned from the Apostle Paul. Maturity is maturity when it shows up in ministry and mission. Maturity, just for maturity's sake, I mean, just to have a theological system down pat, ladies and gentlemen, that ain't what this is about. We're not measuring how many people we're feeding in the mess hall. We're measuring how many people are on the front lines. Or at least supposed to be. Or we could continue to count nickels, noses, and buildings. 
Does anybody want that? I, I don't think you do. Guys, for Paul, he is a man on the move. Pretty simple to say. The only thing that finally stopped Paul was that he was arrested. He's put in jail. He couldn't keep moving because he was in shackles. Did you notice, I mean, as I read cities, places, towns, countries, regions, all mentioned because Paul is moving. He'd stay in Corinth for 18 months and he'd stay in Ephesus for three years. And, but as soon as the flag got planted, he's gone. Paul's mission kept him moving. He was assaulting. He was always seeking to overtake as much of the enemy territory as he could. Gang, you can't read these 11 chapters without noticing how determined Paul was to take it to him. In the best sense of that word. That's Paul. Guys. We measure ourselves next to that man's theology. We're doing well. But that man's theology got translated in a way and fleshed itself out in a life. That's where we're not doing well. Maturity is not maturity. Until it shows up in some sort of ministry and mission. For Paul, as soon as the flag of truth got planted, off he went. Because he had a mind saturated with truth. And embedded in that truth system of his. Was a compulsion. To spread it. Folks. That compulsion. If, 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 that, if that compulsion or one similar to it, if that compulsion is not in the truth system that you and I say that we've adopted, I want you to know we've adopted the wrong truth system. If, if the message that we love does not contain a compulsion within it, it's the wrong message. The right message provides this motive to get moving. The right message provokes actions consistent with the message. It's not enough to get the message straight. Now guys, it's right here that I hope that you'll listen to me. If, you're, if, you've, gone asleep, if, you've, if you've fallen asleep, wake up. Because you've got to get this part. Because when I speak of a compulsion, what do I have in mind? That is, if our message doesn't have within it a compulsion, uh, we got the wrong message. What compulsion am I talking about? That compulsion is important. Because am I saying that in all of you must be some kind of component part of foreign global missions? Am I saying that there must be a compulsion in the truth system that you adopt that, that is somehow, some way, some smidgen of being an evangelist? I am not saying that. I'm sort of saying that. <laughs> but I'm not saying that. Is that clear? 
Let me try to explain, folks. I want you to see something if you've still got your Bibles open. If you examine the ministry of the Apostle Paul, which is what I did for about 45 straight days, you could not summarize the ministry of the Apostle Paul with the word evangelist. You could not summarize the Apostle Paul's ministry with the word missionary. I want to show you that real quick. It's in chapter 20, verse 20. Paul is speaking to Ephesian elders and he says this. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Do you see that? A real part of Paul's ministry is nothing to do with evangelism or outreach or missions. Right there, he is, he is giving himself over to an Ephesian church to teach him from house to house and in public every place else he could. So all I'm trying to say is, not all that Paul did was evangelistic by any means. However, though it wasn't evangelistic, here I go, it was expansionistic. Now you think those are different, those are the same word, and, and I, I'm suggesting they're not. Guys, what I'm suggesting is, in the, in the mind and the heart of Paul, it seems that he always had in view spreading this thing to as many people as he could in everything that he did. He was always concerned to see this particular message that had so gripped him uh, given to many body who would, uh, he could get it to. And, and that was in the mind of Paul, this, this not so much trying to win people to Christ every time, but he did that a lot. But there was this message about a person that was so gloriously beautiful that he paused for three years to spend teaching the Ephesian church. Do you, do you get my point? I'm saying not all of it was global missions, not all of it was evangelistic, but all of it was, there was a mindset in the Apostle Paul that this thing has got to get out there. That's what I mean by expansionistic. Now, what did Paul have that we don't have? What he had was, or no, what was he up to that we're not up to? He was up to a mission. The boy was on, his, on the move. Now, let me get to my second question. We haven't got about, about nine more minutes, but what does Paul have that we don't have? Um, what motivates Paul? Well, very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, that's hard to say. It's hard to tell. I, you know, that you're up to, I'm, I'm trying to read a man's heart. I can't read his heart. I don't know what it was that, um, that motivated him. I can't tell what his motives are. Um, but, but why does he go uh, to all these places and do what he does? Why does he do that? I, I can't say for sure. But could I offer this much? Two things. First of all, I think the better question is not why Paul did it. But why we don't. I can't figure out Paul's motives. But I can figure out, I can gauge my behavior. I can evaluate what I do and don't do. I don't know about his. I'm worried about mine. There is one thing that I want you to note, and, and we'll try to draw this to a close, but 
One of the things that I want you to note about Paul, and we'll try to develop this later on, but there was not an ounce, not an ounce of of self-promotion in the Apostle Paul. I I encourage you to read these 11 chapters. Read them 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 12 times. That'd be about one-tenth of the number of times I read them. But read them lots. And I don't think you'll ever see him drawing attention to himself. It It was not about Paul. It was about having God do in the lives of others what that God had done in his own life. So Paul went everywhere that he could, teaching it and preaching it and working it and, 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 and serving it and, and writing it and suffering for it. All of it was about the God that he thought was so beautiful. It wasn't about Paul. It was about the beauty of Paul's God. Can I read you one other? This is... 2024, but none of these things move me, says Paul, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Is that not captivating? This ain't about me. It's about giving voice to this ministry that I was given about the grace of God. You know, guys, if if I could pause just for a little bit of a tangent here. When I come back from these uh, little trips that I take, and um, the most recent one, of course, uh, it's been over two and a half weeks or so. When I come back from those trips, invariably, inevitably, I get get two or three comments from people. I run into them on Wednesday nights or, you know, on Sunday mornings, and they come up to me and they say something like this. It's not always this, but it's something like this. They say, um, <laughs> you know, you better stop all that being gone stuff. <laughs> because so-and-so, he was mighty good. And he's going to move you out of that pulpit before you know it. Now, most of them are kidding. <laughs> not all of them. But ladies and gentlemen, here's my grief. My grief is not being told that I'm replaceable. My grief is not being told that I'm expendable. My grief is that I haven't taught you that Grace Evan is not about me. The ministry of the Church of Grace Evan is not about providing some safe and secure job for Jimmy Young. And because I haven't communicated that to you, you've concluded that the worst thing that could ever happen to me is that I'd be vaulted out of this pulpit. Nobody ever said anything like that to Paul. Because to be around Paul was to realize that the that all that he did was about God and the beauty of this salvation that he had wrought in his own life through Christ. And that thing set him to moving. Let, let, me, let me close by telling you what I want you to go home with. What, what I want you to leave with. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, theological precision, which is important. Don't ever devalue it. I don't want to devalue it. I hope you hadn't heard me devalue it. But theological precision 
must be married to some kind of ministry involvement. That's what I want you to hear. You want the sermon? There it is. A theological precision that is worth that name must be married to some kind of ministry involvement. Guys, I'm not up here trying to um, turn this church into a room full of evangelists. I'm not trying to turn it into a room full of missionaries. But I am trying, by God's grace, to turn it into a group of expansionists. I'm, I'm aiming at a mindset, ladies and gentlemen. I'm aiming at, a, at an attitude, at a, at a commitment that thinks expansionistically. I just made that word up. Guys, I, and, and I'm not wanting expansion in terms of buildings and size and church growth. That stuff is a curse. It's all about men. But I do want you to think about carrying a message about a gloriously beautiful God to the ends of the earth and to downtown Memphis. I want you to think expansionistically. I want you to live expansionistically. I want you to give expansionistically. I want you to pray expansionistically. Because, my friends, have you understood yet that we exist for them? We exist for them. Gang, I want to be a spreader. I want to be a scatterer. And and that may mean I do it myself. It may mean I get behind others so that they can do it. That's what I want you to do. Not maybe that you do it yourself, but you get behind somebody and, and, and enable them to do it. And do it better and better and better and more and more and more. I, I want to move this message that we believe out of this room and into the lives of people who have nothing more to hold on to but the ugly. I'll close with this. There are, there are two names in ancient history that stand out as, as the great orators of the ages. One of them is a guy by the name of Cicero. He was Roman. He, lived about a, he was born about 100 years before Christ, and he was ultimately executed by Octavian. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, and then there was a guy by the name of Demosthenes. He was Athenian. Demosthenes, you might know the stories about Demosthenes, how he sought to improve his elocution. He talked with um, pebbles in his mouth. He filled his mouth with pebbles, and he, would, he learned how to speak with pebbles in his mouth. And he would, he would quote verses as he ran down the seashore trying to outshout the roar of the waves. When Cicero would speak, when the Romans heard Cicero, they were awed and overcome with such oratorical skill. And they would, they would reply, what a speaker. When the Athenians, when the Athenians heard Demosthenes speak, they would say, let us march. 
when we get the right message, ladies and gentlemen, when we hear the right one, we'll know it. Because we too will then say, let us march. Our Father, I do pray that you would stir up the hearts of your people. We have, um, we have bought into a system, and it's a beautiful one. It's one that was taught by a man inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul. And yet Paul was the same man who took that truth and took it to Rome and ultimately wanted to get to Spain and couldn't quite get there. But, oh God, stir up in the hearts of your people the same desire to expand. We don't need another building, Lord. What we need is the heart and the soul and the mind of an expansionist. That we're either going to do it ourselves or we're going to get behind people who are doing it. Because we think this message is so gloriously beautiful, we cannot in any way keep it to ourselves. Raise up from among us, O God, a group of people who more than most things in their life, they are eager and ready and willing to march. We commit ourselves to that, Father, knowing that the Holy Spirit of God is the one who must build that in us. So, we ask you in the name of Christ and for his sake to build it in us. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.